Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barton in Washington. Today is Tuesday, December 13. And here are some of the stories we are covering. The U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit gets underway in Washington today, Tuesday. Delegations from all 49 invited African countries and the African Union will attend alongside members of civil society and the private sector. Several African first ladies were guests of honor Monday night in Washington, D.C., a decisive week ahead for South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. A report from Pakistan alleges the assassination of a journalist in Kenya. Zambian police investigate the death of 27 migrants, possibly from Ethiopia. Most of them were found with um, some uh, Ethiopian uh, documents, like passports, indicating that uh, these should be or could be Ethiopian. And refugees in Uganda's Kiandongo camp decry sexual and gender-based violence. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit gets underway today, Tuesday, in Washington, D.C. At Monday's White House press briefing, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan gave a preview of what to expect during the next three days. Tomorrow marks the start of the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, a three-day summit hosted by President Biden that will highlight how the United States and African nations are strengthening our partnerships to advance shared priorities. Delegations from all 49 invited African countries and the African Union will attend alongside members of civil society and the private sector. The president, the vice president, and members of the cabinet will have extensive engagement with leaders throughout the summit. Tomorrow, we'll kick off with a focus on the vital role of civil society and the strength of our African diaspora communities in the United States. It'll feature a range of sessions on topics from trade and investment to health and climate to peace, security, and governance, to space cooperation. On Wednesday, the focus will be on increasing two-way trade and investment at the U.S.-Africa Business Forum. CEOs and private sector leadership from over 300 American and African companies will convene with the heads of delegation to catalyze investment in critical sectors, including health, infrastructure, energy, agribusiness, and digital. The president will close the business forum on Wednesday with public remarks. Later in the day, he will host a small group of leaders at the White House for a discussion on upcoming presidential elections in 2023 in Africa and U.S. support for free, fair, and credible polls across the continent. He will then host Wednesday evening all 50 heads of delegation and their spouses for a dinner here at the White House. Thursday is dedicated to high-level discussions among leaders, with President Biden opening the day with a session on partnering on Agenda 2063, the African Union's strategic vision for the continent. A working lunch by Vice President Harris will follow that session, and then the president will close the day with a discussion on food security and food systems resilience, which, as you all know, is a critical issue for our African partners who have been disproportionately impacted by the rise in food and fertilizer prices and disruptions to global supply chains as a result of Russia's war against Ukraine. Throughout the next three days and then beyond the next three days, we look forward to leveraging the best of America. Sullivan also announced U.S. support for the African Union joining the G20 and a permanent seat on the U.N. Security Council. As you know, the president intends to announce U.S. support for the African Union 
to join the G20 as a permanent member. It's past time for Africa to have permanent seats at the table in international organizations and initiatives. And the President also plans to underscore his commitment to UN Security Council reform, including support for a permanent member from the African continent. Working closely with Congress, the U.S. will commit $55 billion to Africa over the course of the next three years across a wide range of sectors to tackle the core challenges of our time. These commitments build on the United States' longstanding leadership and partnership in de development, economic growth, health, and security in Africa over the past three decades. You'll be hearing a number of announcements over the coming days, uh, specific deliverables in a number of different areas, new projects and initiatives. That was National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan speaking during Monday's White House press briefing. As the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit gets underway today, Tuesday, several African First Ladies were guests of honor on Monday night at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African Art in Washington, D.C., for the launch of the Women United Foundation. Deborah Elizabeth is founder and executive director of the institution. She tells me the foundation aims to provide an international platform for all women to go beyond national boundaries to collectively project a united message of change. Well, the idea of the event is to honor the First Ladies of Africa. Women United Foundation was founded for women leaders to give them more of a platform to speak about the good that's going on on the continent of Africa and making sure that that narrative comes from Africans to the world rather than others back to the continent. And when I say honor, I mean listen. So we have a program where we feel as if the First Ladies are the best cultural ambassadors that the continent has as they are mothers, they're not elected, but they represent so much for the continent, for their nation, in culture and diplomacy and what we call soft diplomacy and really engaging um, the world in interest of their countries. But the participation of the First Ladies will be in the, in the form of a panel. So it's really a conversation, a learning conversation also for those in the audience that want to know there's government officials, there's NGO people, there's CEOs, there's media, and everybody wants to hear from the First Ladies how they can be more involved to make more impact and change. Tonight is just the beginning of a conversation that will continue and continue and continue throughout the year as we follow the First Ladies, we follow their platforms for change, and we find better ways that we can support them, better ways that the continent can be described, overturning negative images and negative narratives, and giving our own narrative of not only our challenges, but as solutions. But these solutions have to come from Africa's first ladies. So do you know how many first ladies will be in attendance? Yes, we have six first ladies confirmed. And as you know, it's a bit chaotic because some of the ladies are coming in just today and they are taking time to come this evening. So we have confirmed six first ladies. The first lady of Sierra Leone, Fatima Madobio, she is our international spokesperson for the foundation. So she's involved directly with the foundation as well. And she will be in attendance. Yes. She will be in attendance. Her husband as well. The president will be in attendance. And our patroness of our foundation is actually Mama Antoinette Sassoon-Ngesu, who was unable to attend because she um, has an illness, so she was unable to travel. And the first ladies that were not able to attend, um, they sent delegations. So we have the direct delegations of Nigeria. We have delegation from Namibia. And we have a delegation from Burundi. The Prime Minister of Burundi will attend. Are you expected to also have uh, members of the U.S. Congress attending or what? Yes, we do. We have three Congresswomen confirmed. That is Sheila Jackson Lee, 
Congresswoman Alma Adams and Congresswoman Cori Bush. We also have from the U.S. government the USA UN Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who will be attending the event, and she will be a keynote speaker as well. We have with us also the Deputy Secretary of the Housing and Urban Development, which is known as HUD in the USA, Adrian Todman. You have also outlined performances by some African artists. Yes. So Fali Pupo will perform. Uh, we have live performance. Um, we are hoping that Techno will catch his flight and that his flight will land in time. And Yusur as well is on the same flight. Deborah, thank you so much. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Deborah Elizabeth is founder and executive director of Women United Foundation. She was speaking with me from Washington, D.C. This week promises to be yet another important one for South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. The country's parliament is expected to decide today, Tuesday, whether to impeach the president because of the scandal regarding his Palapala farm. At the same time, the ruling African National Congress is also expected to hold its annual congress this week to choose a leader. Professor David Munyad is the director of the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg. He tells me it is not likely that the ANC members of parliament who hold the majority will vote to impeach the president. I think what we are going to see uh, Tuesday, it's a lively debate. Um, The situation is quite tense. The political parties' opposition in particular, I think, they will all go all out for the president in terms of the debate uh, around the whole saga of Palapala, Farmgate uh, scandal. And uh, it is going to look uh, lively and uh, intense. However, when everything is said and done, I doubt very much if there will be an outcome that they desire. It appears that the ruling party will rally around their men and uh, the political party in power, ANC, is not ready to let him go through the parliamentary process. But beyond the legal system of the ANC, Friday uh, is yet another important date for the president as he faces the elective conference that uh, starts on Friday. That is going to really uh, decide uh, his fate. So let me ask you, you are talking about the African National Congress meeting, which is coming up also this week. And you are saying that he's likely to be re-elected. As it stands, it's really hard to tell if he's going to completely be defeated. Uh, chances are still high that he might survive, given the poor organization of uh, his opponents and uh, also cases around his opponents. Uh, the people that are going for him, those who are really vocal, are people somehow who have... Uh, really, uh, their closets are full of skeletons. And therefore, I think there is just that lack of trust by members of the governing party that they might not command that overwhelming numbers to really defeat him. So what do you make of the uh, suggestion by some people that he might, the president might resign? Is that possible? There are rumors that he had written a resignation letter. And uh, yeah, before he read it, uh, he was stopped by his closest allies that went all out. And as we can see, the kind of strategies and tactics used by his allies seem to be working, uh, going the constitutional route and also defending the merit of the panel report and avoiding going all out in terms of the party uh, voting him out of power through the vote of no confidence in parliament 
uh, deciding to concentrate much more mechanisms within the party itself. Professor, thank you so much. It's a pleasure speaking with you on Daybreak Africa. Thank you. Professor David Munier is the director of the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg. He was speaking with me from Johannesburg. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Tuesday, December 13. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Zambian police have launched an investigation into the death of 27 men whose bodies were discovered in a farm area near the capital, Lusaka, on Sunday. Police spokesperson Danny Mwale says one person survived and is in the hospital. He says travel documents found on the bodies indicate the migrants could be Ethiopians. He tells me that by the look of the bodies, it appears they died from suffocation. On Sunday, 11th of uh, December, 2022, around 06 hours, that's uh, early morning, members of the public in the Lusaka is Ngorere area. Ngorere is a place in the outskirts of uh, Lusaka. Members of the public discovered some suspected dead bodies which were dumped alongside the road in a bushy, some forest uh, area. So what it is is quickly they alerted the police and the police rushed to the scene. And um, upon uh, arrival by the police, they discovered one person was uh, gasping for life. He had some life in him. So quickly he was uh, rushed to the uh, hospital for treatment. And uh, that's where he is up to now, still receiving uh, medical attention. Police counted the bodies, uh, which came to 27. So the 27 were confirmed uh, dead. And um, during uh, the preliminary investigation, right on the scene, most of them were found with um, some uh, Ethiopian uh, documents on them, like passports, indicating that uh, these uh, should be or could be Ethiopian. From there, all the 27 bodies were picked and deposited in uh, Zambia's uh, biggest hospital, which is in the capital city, uh, the University Teaching Hospital. So as it is, police, uh, together with other security agencies, uh, we have uh, launched investigations to establish exactly what could have uh, transpired. From the way the bodies were appearing, one could tell that uh, probably they died as a result of uh, suffocation. But it could be too early to say that, not until we have uh, the post-mortem examination results. Danny, uh, first of all, I'm going to come back to what you said, but let me ask you about this one survivor. What is his status now? How is he doing? As of today, we are told by the medical personnel that uh, he is responsive, but uh, in a condition where we can't carry an interview with him. You said that from the way things look, it seems that these people died from suffocation. This is not the first time. I think somewhere in Malawi, a similar situation occurred. Do you know, or I mean, your investigation now, are there people who are in the business of transporting migrants from one place to another? I want you to get me correctly. I want you to indicate that from the way they appeared, uh, one would conclude that they died as a result of suffocation. But we are waiting for 
post-mortem examination results that will make us conclude the actual cause uh, of death. Were they coming to Zambia or were they going to another African country? What do you know? In the first place, it's important to appreciate that Zambia is a landlocked country. We are surrounded by other countries. So as of now, we can't establish if they were coming to Zambia to stay or they were just uh, en route to some other destination. That is part of our investigation. For now, it will be premature to say that they were crossing or they came to stay. Danny, thank you so much. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Bati. I'm so grateful. That was Zambian police spokesperson Danny Mwale speaking with me from the capital, Lusaka. The killing of a Pakistani journalist, Asha Sharif, in Kenya has been termed a premeditated assassination. This, according to a report handed to Kenya by Pakistani investigators who dismissed Kenya police claims that Sharif was killed because of mistaken identity. In October, police officers shot him at a roadblock along the Nairobi-Magadi Highway a few kilometers from Kenya's capital, Nairobi. They say the driver of the vehicle illegally drove through the police barrier. Marine Ojiambo reports. The police say the incident was also a case of mistaken identity, but Pakistan detectives deployed to Kenya to investigate the murder of journalist Arshad Sharif have termed the claim impossible. In a 600-page report, the detectives say that the bullet pattern suggests that the car was not moving at the time of the shooting. Injuries also suggest that Sheriff was shot at a close range and that one of the bullets could have been shot from inside the car. In October 23rd, the Kenya police admitted to have shot by mistake the investigative journalist who was in the country on a visitor's visa. The General Service Unit GSU had earlier claimed that Sheriff was shot because the car he was in defied roadblock rules. Vincent Kitili is a sub-county police commander in Kajiado. And when they drove through, it prompted the GSUs to act because it was so clear that these guys saw the officers and they were in uniform, but they decided to bypass. That prompted the GSU officers to react, and that's how one of the occupants of the, that particular vehicle was fatally injured. According to the report, it is suspected that the killer aimed directly at the stationary vehicle and shot the journalist several times. It has also emerged that a secondary autopsy conducted on the body of the Pakistan journalist showed that there were 12 marks on the body, an indication that he had been tortured before being killed. Sharif also had missing fingernails at the time his remains were being flown for burial in Pakistan. Experts say the Pakistan investigators are not providing sufficient proved to back up the planned assassination allegations. A security expert, Richard Tuta, says further evidence is needed to prove the charges. I don't think it will be fair to the Kenyan security systems when they say that uh, whatever happened was a planned because if it was a planned according to them, they are supposed now to prove that it was planned and proving that it was planned is that they ought to give uh, the meetings that were held uh, in planning the same, the, the Pakistani security agencies needed to share with, the, uh, with the, their Kenyan counterpart. The evidence that are there unless proved otherwise is that uh, this was just an isolated case. 
Twitter says the report will not affect diplomatic ties between Kenya and Pakistan and would not jeopardize the international image of Kenya. He says those deciding to take refuge in Kenya may also not be affected. It will only be an embarrassment to the Kenyan security systems if the Pakistani investigators provide a sufficient and enough evidence, both uh, rudimentary, trace and uh, and uh, circumstantial. You should also know that uh, these Pakistani security agencies report to, to a public uh, back home. And maybe this finding is just to take care of, of, of the public back home. At the time of the shooting, Sharif was in the car with his Kenyan host, Quran Ahmed, who was not injured in the shooting. The journalist is said to have been on the run from threats in his country and was afraid of his life. Sharif was not on good terms with the Pakistan government, which had reportedly been looking to charge him with several counts of treason. Kenya is yet to respond to the findings of the report. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Jumbo in Sacramento, California. Alcoholism and poverty are being blamed for the increasing number of cases of gender-based violence among refugees in Uganda's Kiandongo camp. Women say their intoxicated husbands regularly beat them when they return home after drinking. The main types of violence include emotional abuse, physical assault and rape, the denial of resources, and forced and early marriage. From Kampala, reporter Catherine Nambi has the story. Mary Ondoa, a South Sudanese refugee, has been staying in the Chiriandongo camp since 2014. She says over the years, she has endured both physical and sexual abuse by her husband, who sells the household's food to buy alcohol. We start okay, the life with him, but later on, he changed. He starts drinking alcohol and moving with the friends. When the man reaches at home, when he needs sex, like most at night, uh, he will force in in harassing way, not in polite way. When I refuse, they immediately start beating me there and then. Once I'm not there at home, just go and pick what is there inside and go and exchange with the alcohol. Like, when you come to ask, why do you do that? Immediately, fighting starts. I'm tired of the life I'm living in. Another refugee from South Sudan in Chiriandongo, Dusio Rachel, says she has experienced emotional violence from her husband who neglects his role as a parent. Father drinks and comes home drunk. Anything you say, or you don't even say anything, they start violence there and then. Whenever I talk to him, he's so rude. And he rarely sees the children. I've handled the children in the hospital with the dangerous operations alone. I live with the trauma. Some men are also reporting being abused and battered by their wives. Adam Datiro is a South Sudanese man in the camp. Some women, they drunk, they come and fought with their men. If you kill him, now who will help you in the future? Maureen Wagube is the executive director of a local non-government organization, the Institute for Social Transformation, which is helping address sexual and gender-based violence in Chiyandongo refugee settlement. She says the cases are rampant and is calling for sensitization to help reduce the problem in areas that host refugees. 
most of the men are the ones who are handling the cards where that they use to go and access food. And we are seeing men who are running away that they're not giving the women the opportunity to have food. Somebody goes, gets the card and disappears and comes back after two weeks and he has left the family without food. But also the issues of rape happening around this area. How do we come in to support these people and ensure that rape is also uh, not raising alarmingly like we have had? Because we assume that men know, but most of them don't, that it's violence anyway. The commandant of Chiriandongo Refugee Settlement, Emmanuel Tudiagenda, says policies are in place to address sexual and gender-based violence, but some cases are not reported. So in case of any complaint at that level, the refugees report to the cluster leader, and the cluster leader attempts to solve that problem. When he fails, it goes to level two, ranch leader. When it fails, then it comes to our office. So here there is a line of management where grievances can be addressed. Well, and these are voted by their own people. The violence was publicized in the last Uganda Refugee Response Plan by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. It cited 2,541 cases of gender-based violence with rapes and physical assaults, the leading cause in the Chiliandongo settlement. The camp is home to about 75,000 refugees, the majority women and children, from South Sudan. This is Catherine Nambi for VON News in Kampala. And that's it for this Tuesday, December 13th edition of Daybreak Africa. I am James Botting.